Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio, Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. Why download the app? Because life is messy. We get stressed, anxious, have trouble sleeping, we work too hard, we deal with conflict, our hearts get broken, we worry about the state of the world. We meditate because we're human. Our app gives you hundreds of meditations from over 30 leading experts. It helps a lot. And if you haven't tried the app yet, you can now try it for free and explore a starter series plus a sample of some of our favorite guided meditations in the Discover collection. You may also want to check out our new meditation collections this year. Mindful eating, work, authentic leadership, and a special collection just for college students. There's also a new mindful work and sleep basics course. If you've already got the app, check out our new unguided meditation timer where you can create your own meditations with or without our brand new, pretty amazing music tracks. And don't forget the eight free meditations on Alexa. Just ask her to enable Meditation Studio. Today's guest is Daniel Ellenberg, PhD and president of an organization called Relationships That Work. He's also founder of Strength With Heart Men's Group and Workshops and vice president of the Rewire Leadership Institute, where he helps teams thrive in the business world. He co-authored a book with his wife called Lovers for Life, Creating Lasting Passion, Trust, and True Partnership. Today, he's most passionate about helping men be more authentic, vulnerable, and real in relationships and not feeling limited by the quote-unquote shoulds that go along with the traditional male roles. In this interview, he shares why men feel restricted and why he thinks that expressing our vulnerabilities is actually a source of strength and can improve emotional intimacy in relationships. He truly believes that being real and authentic about what you're feeling on the inside is so important and mindfulness helps. He's worked with a lot of actual rocket scientists over the years and says that many have told him that relationships are much more complicated than rocket science. Let's see why. Now, here's Daniel. Daniel, it is so great to have you with us on Untangle today. Thank you so much for making the time. My pleasure, Patricia. So give us a little bit about your background and maybe with the spin in terms of how you became so interested in the work that you're doing with men and with love and relationships. Well, I think that in life, we are either drawn into the territory of pleasure or we're drawn away from the territory of pain. And I think that both of those major influences in my life have led me on the path or path that I've taken. So when it comes to my work with men, I think that a lot of it had to do with my early experiences being male and feeling that my parents, the school, my religious organizations, the media, everywhere I looked, there were no real role models for the type of male I felt myself to be inside. And uh, nor were there models for what I saw would be conversant and resilient for males in terms of their relationships with each other. And so I got involved 
with some earlier men's movement stuff in the very early 80s. And I started leading men's groups 34 plus years ago and have been in the leader of this group myself. And more recently have gotten involved with mindful self-compassion work that Chris Bremer and Kristen Neff created. And I've been working with Steve Hickman, who was executive director of the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion that we're developing a men's program, which we call Ultimate Courage, because it actually takes courage for men to go inward and address the ways that they are hurting pups in a way and be able to, and be willing to speak about that. I've been very interested in male evolution. How do males, men evolve? And certainly women have done a better job at that. They've had on one level, more challenges, and on another level, less challenges you know, in terms of being you know, whole people. And I, without going into a long discourse about gender differences, I'll just say that a lot of men feel very, very restricted because they have not learned that to feel and to express their actual vulnerabilities is actually a source of strength. I created my men's work in a way where I was really acknowledging the power of vulnerability. Long before, like Brene Brown was talking about the power of vulnerability, which has come out now as a strength. I was leading workshops on this in the late 80s about really the power of vulnerability. What I found is that when you get a group of guys together and there's a context and an encouragement to come out of hiding, so to speak, and to be real, be authentic about what you're actually feeling on the inside, then it's amazing the level of camaraderie and support uh, that develops. And people you know, recognize that they're not alone. I mean, they feel alone, but the kind of loneliness that's so pervasive in men can dissipate very quickly within the context of really love and support. And that's actually part of what helps heal the inner loneliness and isolation that many, many, many males face these days. Well, let me ask you a question, sort of winding back to what you just said a little bit earlier. You said that you felt like there were no real role models for who you felt like on the inside. Who did you feel like on the inside and how were you able to find even the language that you needed to define that for yourself as different? When you started saying that, Patricia, I noticed my mouth, who were you on the inside, starting to smile there. So on the inside, I felt really sensitive. I mean, I think I was born a pretty sensitive being, and I was really in a rather insensitive environment. And the, the German existentialist Martin Heidegger, he said that we were like thrown into the world. And I was thrown, it seems, into a family that just didn't meet who I was. And so there was a lot of criticism, sarcasm, and hostility, and just threats, not in a physical sense of threat, but kind of more emotional, psychological threats. So I learned to protect myself. And naturally, all animals, and I call us human animals, will find ways to protect ourselves, i.e. develop defenses. I like to go macro about these things. So in looking at how I, as an individual, may fit into the larger uh, stream of human consciousness and tribal, because I've done quite a lot of introspection on looking at my own dynamics, I develop certain 
look at fight, flight, freeze. I developed definitely fight defenses like I would be. Learn to be sarcastic also. Learn to be as dominant as I possibly could be. To really play the male role, so to speak. And so I learned to be pretty good at it. I wasn't someone who just rolled over on some level. Not necessarily stronger, but more aggressive over time. And that led to problems, shockingly enough, in relationships. Because I found ways to exact a pound of flesh from people. And I was quite unconscious. I thought I was simply speaking my truth. But actually, and I learned that I was expressing levels of hostility. And as I started to become more aware of my, what you call the shadow aspects, you know, I wasn't proud of them. I felt like I got lots of shame. But over time, I was kind of like, okay, well, that's who I was, and that's fine. And I learned from that, and I course corrected from there. And I don't have to be the kind of man, and I'm not the kind of man that my father was, who incidentally uh-huh. died when I was 10 years old. So it wasn't like he was around a long time, but he made quite an impression. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of his, his rage, unresolved rage. What you're saying is you felt really sensitive on the inside as you were growing up. And then when you started to be in relationship with women, you had this sort of hard exterior. There was this like cognitive dissonance or this gap between how you were feeling on the inside and how you were behaving on the outside. And what was your defining moment when you said, I don't want to be this person. I need to do my work. But then you also, with your wife, you wrote this book about love and lasting relationships. So there's sort of this trajectory of when you transitioned into becoming more knowledgeable on this topic and also on your own needs? Well, I met my wife when I was 32, and now I'm 64, so I've been with her half my life. I've gone through a lot of changes before then. I think that you know, I got into therapy when I turned 20. That was absolutely life-changing, and I started really addressing some of the dynamics that kept me distant. I mean, I, I literally was so panicked when I was younger, that my first therapist told me when we were completing two and a half years after we had started that the kind of anxiety panic that he saw me exhibiting two and a half years earlier was similar to people who he saw hospitalized. Wow. I wasn't in that place at that time, but certainly from the time I was 22 to being 64, a lot has changed. I and mean, a lot of change certainly between then and when I met my wife at 32. But I went through a lot of different quick I wouldn't call them relationships, one-night stands with quick forays with women until I was almost 30. I found myself with women, drawn to women who were strong enough to give me feedback. And so there was obviously some at least unconscious mechanism in place that was longing to be different than I was. Even though I created discord and anger and reaction and hurt and all, there was still a part of me that was listening and paying attention to that. And so I don't know if I can point to any one moment where everything in me transformed, nor would I say that everything in me has transformed even now. But I think there's there's this steady trajectory of really looking at the kind of person I wanted to be. And I will tell you that even in my 60s, I feel like I've made major changes in the last three or four years around being more peaceful with people really being more uh, reflective and less reflexive about how I want to be. Yeah. So we know from neuroscience 
that the wiring that develops through the confluence of nature and nurture early in life never changes. I mean, it's always there. However, we also know that through neuroplasticity, we can lay new paths in the brain through practice that eventually becomes habits. Right. And I feel like for me, I have developed newer habits that cause me to stop before I blurt. I say I've largely overcome the blurter syndrome. And I'm sure your mindfulness practice has been a big part of that because that gives you that ability to pause and reflect before you do blurt. But it sounds to me like a lot of the personal work that you did inspired you to feel so much better about yourself and who you are and were in the world that that really inspired the book that you wrote with your wife because you could see that a lot of men were similar to you and that maybe needed this kind of support in terms of how they could be better partners in relationship. Let's fast forward several years and you become more and more interested in supporting men to become more vulnerable, have more inner strength, become more sort of emotionally intelligent in personal relationships. What are some of the biggest issues, questions, challenges that you hear in your men's group or with the men that you support? And sort of how can we as women understand this better? Well, I think that one of the big issues that men face, and again, this isn't all men, we're talking about tendencies, has to do with the whole territory of not feeling in control, not feeling so we're certain, secure, strong, on point, on purpose, and that there is some underlying shame about that. That there's a sense that we should know more, we should be stronger, we should be more in control. There's a lot of shoulds in there that men can be dominated by those shoulds. And underlying that is the sense of how do you, on some level, internally and externally, so-called prove yourself to actually be a real man, whatever that means. I think one of the big differences between female and male conditioning is that females don't have to prove that they're women. There's not a sense of, okay, one day I'm going to prove I'm a woman that they may be more attractive or accomplished or more several different dynamics there, but not necessarily proving that. For guys, there's a sense of like, you can be castigate. Oh, you're not a real man. You're a wuss. You're a pussy. You're a sissy. You're a... And interestingly enough, a lot of these are derisive comments toward the feminine because a lot of guys will try to prove their masculinity, so-called, by not being feminine, which is one of the dumbest and worst myths that have ever developed. That I could go on and on and on about that. But nonetheless, guys are raised with that. And so there's this sense of that they should know. And I think that when women start challenging them on some level, they can feel rather brittle inside and get quite defensive. So a lot of the work is around how do you kind of open and expand to include and actually not feel threatened or to whatever degree mm-hmm. really work with your kind of threat defense system. Because if you can really find ways to just calm your nervous system, you mentioned mindfulness before, certainly a major part of the practice. If you can calm your nervous system, be more self-regulating and not so anxious and potentially panicked, right. then when your girlfriend or 
wife or female boss, whoever is upset and challenges, you don't immediately go into threat mode. And again, when we go into threat mode, it's fight, flight, freeze, right. some combination. And when we're communicating from defensive reactions, things don't tend to go well, to put it mildly. So a lot of the work is how to create a sense of inner calm, inner resilience, so that you can be more aware of like, okay, yeah, I got triggered about something and how can I be self-compassionate about that? And self-compassion has certainly been shown to ameliorate or certainly reduce the threat reactions and create more inner calmness. So self-compassion is part of how we work. Yeah. And then there's also communication, which is in the territory of like, how do you actually know what you're thinking and feeling? Is this something that is worth uh, raising. But I think it's so interesting what you're saying about men feeling like they should do this or they should be like this, because I think for so long, women, especially women in business, have felt like they needed to be more like men. That right. creates a lack of authenticity, because when we feel like we have to be like someone else or like a cultural role model, we're not who we are. And it sounds to me, and you know, women, like you're saying, women have done so much work to get back to authentically who I am. And if I want to be feminine and, you know, an adventurer, that's great. If I want to be hardcore in business, that's great too. You know, we can be all the things we are. And I feel like the work that you're doing is just starting to tap into men, giving themselves permission to be who they are and to find a language for communicating who exactly. they are. I find that so interesting. And I almost wonder if we're all like kind of trying to be our authentic selves and they're not these sort of defined role models anymore, or those are sort of going a little bit away, does that make relationships more or less complicated? Because we're sort of in this like unchartered territory. Right. Exactly. It's funny when you said more or less complicated, my answer was yes. It's funny because you're saying that women are trying to be different than they actually are. I would also say that men are trying to be different than they actually yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's where pretend, we're coming. By pretending, ultimately, guys are pretending to feel stronger than they actually do inside. One of the exercises, for example, that we'll do in the men's work is have people pass a question around the circle, which is, what do you pretend? Mm. And one guy will say, well, I pretend to feel stronger than I actually do. Especially as thank you. Then what do you pretend? Well, I pretend that I am really much more in charge than I feel inside. Okay, mm. thank you. What do you pretend? I pretend that I'm more certain than I feel. I pretend, like all kinds of things that guys pretend. Yeah. And they have some awareness of, but actually naming it and bringing it out and you may have to laugh about like we're doing these these crazy not crazy crazy but things that are actually in the way of creating more intimacy but that's what we've learned because that's where civilization has been and we are at an inflection point where there's greater self-awareness potentially mm -hmm. and greater capacity to communicate mindfully but at the same time we're really babes in the woods. We're not deeply developed. Self-awareness is a hard-fought victory. Yes. A neuropsychologist, Louis Casalino, he said, Mother Nature has not seen fit to invest much neural architecture in self-awareness. And yeah. I think that that's true. Yeah, this is true. And how do we develop more? And 
recognize our mm-hmm. own shadows and not shame ourselves for those. How do you yeah. become more aware of those and bring those into relationship? That there's a difference between thought, feeling, and actual behavior. And now we're taking a little break to tell you about our partner, Muse, the brain sensing headband. Muse is an amazing meditation tool that gives you accurate, real-time feedback on what's happening in your brain while you meditate. It guides your practice by translating your brain waves into the sounds of weather. Busy mind, you hear stormy weather. Calm, focused mind, you hear calm, peaceful weather. You'll also get personalized tracking so you can see how your brain changes as your practice evolves. You can take 15% off with this exclusive promotional code, UNTANGLE15, when you check out at ChooseMuse.com. And for more information, go to ChooseMuse.com. Now, back to our show. So let's say for like our listeners who, you know, many people haven't been to a psychologist or maybe haven't read a lot of books about neuroscience, and I'm sure a lot have, but if you had to really like simplify what are the top three things that you think both men and women need to do to help enhance emotional in relationship and to really uncomplicate our relationships with one another? It's important to be clear about what you want. What do you want in a relationship and what do you not want in a relationship? I have had the good fortune of coaching really a lot of different, even single people about what they're looking for in relationships. And I'm a believer in being aware of what you want and speaking about that as consciously as possible from the outset. Essentially, if I know that I want a relationship, I'm talking about a lover relationship right now, but this could be a friendship, it could be a collegial relationship. What do I want in the relationship? So for example, I want accountability. And that accountability may look like if you say you're going to call at a certain time, unless there's some crazy circumstances, your phone dropped to the bottom of the ocean, you call them or call within a reasonable time and not have excuses. Well, I got called into me. Well, you can call or text and say, I'll yeah. call you afterwards. So I want communication to be a certain way. Uh-huh. I want children. I want to say that early and early on to find that does this other person want children or not? Do we share basically the same visions and values or enough so that we're going on the same path? Because what I've seen is a lot of times people, they don't talk about what they really want early on. And they're hoping somehow that if the other person doesn't want what they want, that they can somehow convince them otherwise. Mm, change and that. that, as it turns yeah. out, can, <laughs> can be a losing thing. So know what you want and really and explore this. So that involves some intrapersonal work. Be willing to speak about that. That's the interpersonal work. So address those things early on in the relationship. And if the person doesn't want that, to be aware of your own deficits in the sense like, oh my God, I'm never going to have someone that's the only person I could possibly have and how the mind can trick us into circumventing and giving up on what we really, really want. Uh So it's like have systems in place that you can talk to people, other people than the person who you're in relation with about like what's working, what's not working. Is this a line with your deeper values? Are you compromising yourself 
in a way that's going to erode your self-esteem if you continue down this path? Are you willing to be alone rather than on some level give yourself over to something that doesn't feel right? I mean, I know for me, way back when, when I was engaged to someone, I wasn't quite right. And I really went inward and I said, you know what? I don't want to be, I'd rather not be in a relationship, period, and never be in a relationship and compromise myself on that level, which is what led me to leave that relationship and actually find someone who was more appropriate for me. That's pretty courageous to do that. I think that the courage is actually something I've explored quite a lot. It's actually part of what we call the men's work, ultimate courage, because it's a willingness to be clear about your values and visions and have goals that relate to that and recognize that there are risks. And still, you have to have some level of confidence that if you take action, you can fulfill what you're looking for. And obviously, it doesn't always work immediately. And if you keep learning, keep course correcting and focus on the direction you want to go in, good things tend to happen. Yeah. It's not an accident. And also, what I would recommend looking inward is really how do you develop a practice for yourself that involves shaping and shifting your brain so that you are on some level wanting what's good for you, not necessarily wanting things that you learn should be good for you or what other people want, but actually things that deeply fulfill you. So if you're someone who really loves to be in nature and that's revitalizing and reinvigorating for you, and yet you're living in the heart of the city and you're never getting out of it. Something is off in your balance. How do you get to know yourself better? It's kind of like follow yourself around. It's pretty simple. And really looking at developing resources, inner and outer resources, and that's part of what the practice is about, so that you're not blown over by the next gust of wind. If this relationship doesn't work out or this collegial relationship isn't working or if this problem comes up, then it's not life or death. Because one of the big problems is that the brain is wired in a way that's very, very easy to go into survival. I know Rick has probably mentioned negativity bias, recognizing that we are wired toward the negative and we're we're wired to survive and not necessarily thrive. Recognizing that tendency and recognizing the tendency of the mind to wander, to recognize that the mind just trips off and does all these crazy things and it's not personal. As Paul Gilbert, Compassionate Focused Therapy at British Psychology, says, it's not your fault. It's not your fault that the mind trips off like that and that you freak out over someone leaving you or some potential loss. We're wired to be social, to be tribal, and, and loss presents a threat to what feels like our survival. And at the same time, we can start watching that, observing those tendencies and noticing how the body-mind just trips out and breathe and develop practices, meditation practices, witnessing practices that allow us to start getting some distance from the kind of emotional hijacking that so easily occurs to us as human beings. And that sort of begs the question of how much work should it take, sorry to use the word should, but should it take, or does it really take to be in relationship with someone? Because, you know, we always talk about you have to do the work. And to me, it sounds like there's a lot of inner work you have to do separately before you come together. And it seems like from what you're saying, you know, men are so at the early stages of 
even identifying this work that they need to do and then beginning to do it and to practice. What advice would you give to women then if they feel like this person has potential, but they're not where they want them to be? Does it take a lot of work and patience? Or would you say, move on to somebody else? How do you work within this process with couples? There's no super clear, easy answer to it because, you know the saying, it's not rocket science? I do. (laughs) Having worked with a bunch of rocket scientists, they will all say that relationships are way more complicated than rocket science. Because in rocket science, if you have the correct formula, it's black and white. It's going to work every time. <laughs> right. But not like that when it comes to human beings. So I think that it's very important to be with someone who shares basic values. There are values that I, they must have. Like I was just on a session with a coaching client of mine right before you and I started speaking. And she, she's in the process of being divorced and talking about new guys, potential. And she has a list of like what must be there, what must not be there. For example, no smokers. Right. Like she sure. doesn't want to be around the smell of smoke and, you know, whatever. You know, have to share some interest in adventure. But the point being sure. that it's very important to be clear about what you must have and what you must not have. And then there's the, okay, well, he has potential, but is he actually showing that? Is he doing it? Is he someone who's going to die with his potential intact? Are you noticing movement on his part? You know, they say talk is cheap, and I'm not trying to be uncompassionate about it, but you kind of like trust but verify. I think a lot of women sell themselves short, and they compromise too much. I I think in general, that's the case in situations. And again, are you willing to be alone? Or are you willing to compromise to the point where you're really unhappy all the time and you feel like you're in an inappropriate relationship? Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because of this sort of cultural push to want to be with someone so desperately in a way or the pressure of friends and colleagues getting married? Why is it that women compromise and make choices that might not be the best choices other than the fact that they haven't been through these practices that you're talking about, but do you think there's some cultural push in that direction to just be with a man? Sure. I think there's cultural pushes. I think that there's psychological pushes and there's kind of biological pushes. There's a lot of different influences that lead people to want to be in a couple. This Mm -hmm. is not something new in terms of human evolution. Right, right. It's hardwired into the species. To want that, so it's not some simple thing to go like, well, I am not going to be moved by those things. It's not your fault that you are. That said, I've certainly known of a lot of women who are great women who they just don't find men that can meet them, and it's unfortunate. And part of what I'm trying to do is encourage men to really evolve because there are a lot of awesome women in the world who could really be with them if they were willing to take certain steps. Now, that said, Women, however evolved, are still influenced by some of the old templates about men should always be in control and mm-hmm. ride in on their white, be a white knight in shining armor and yeah. can be a little put off by male vulnerability. So I've known a lot of guys who have said, like, I shared, and she said she wanted to hear my vulnerability. I showed her, but gosh, I wasn't so attractive to her afterwards. 
I think women want it all. You want your man to be strong and vulnerable. We all can be both, right? You don't have to choose one or the other, but you're saying that women get put off by men who are too emotional or too vulnerable because it's not comfortable for them. Yeah, and I just want to say not all women. There are some women. So again, we're talking about more tendencies rather than all women are like this, all men are like this. Yeah. With my wife, when I met 32 years ago, we had this instant, really poignant, powerful connection. And I actually, I cried in her arms four or five times in the first five or six weeks of our relationship, like really hysterically. Wow. Intensely. Now, you wouldn't say, gee, how sexy is that? Oh, my God. What a great strategy. But there was something in me that was moved and trusted her and she was there and and it worked. And I'm not sure if I've ever done it since then. I may have done that once in like 32 years since then. But it was something that happened and something in me released in that interpersonal relational process and didn't need to do that again. Some, I'm sure that some women would be like, what the heck? Is this guy, are you kidding? Am I signing up for a life of this? And that's not what happened with us. And there's no guarantees that somehow a guy would stop that. You must have felt safe. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Indeed, crying is something that's predicated on some level of safety. In an interview we did with an author, who's a woman, Daphne Rose Kingma, who has written like 12 books on love and relationships. And one of our listeners asked her about vulnerability and should you be 100% vulnerable? And she said, I would use discretion. She coined this term, discretionary vulnerability. And in a way, that's what you did. You cried and your future wife must have been empathetic or made you feel like that was okay. And so you could go and, and cry again. And I think that's what we need to understand with each other because we're not mind readers. We don't know how someone is going to receive what we're, you had found the right match for your emotional right. self. I completely agree with that. And it's kind of like, and like Bernard Brown says, to be vulnerable, people who have earned the right to that. So it's not just being absolutely vulnerable to everyone in every circumstance in the world. Some people are not to be trusted. Exactly. That is the reality. Let me ask you a question. One of our listeners sent in this question, which is he was saying that in his relationships, his partner used to, whenever she had a problem, he would try and fix that problem. All she really wanted was empathy. And I'm just wondering in relationship, like, is this sort of what you're saying? We don't know what the other person wants and needs. We have to talk about that. Or do you think men are just in general, really, it's more comfortable for them to just jump in and fix something? Absolutely. I mean, these are kind of classic gender differences where the woman wants to share something the man wants to fix, oftentimes because he feels anxious and also feels like that's his job. She's got a problem fixed, problem fixed, problem solution. Yeah. You know, so I think that one of the most important things to do is to clarify from the outset, what does the other person want? And so, for example, someone starts talking about some problem they're having at work, da, 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 da. and then the listener, and if it's a man or a woman, say, like, how would you like me to listen to you? You wanted to just tell me about this and for me to empathize with you? Are you actually looking for any feedback, any solutions? 
Because one of the things that I have found in my in personal work, and this is both personal and professional, is that most people really don't have very good avenues to become aware about what they want and to communicate about that and to find out what the other person is wanting. Like, what are the underlying drivers? And I would say this for many, many people who meditated for many, many years. Meditation itself does not necessarily offer practices for interpersonal effectiveness. Now, you may be able to calm your nervous system, which will, of course, lead to greater effectiveness. But in terms of actual strategies and practices about how to communicate more effectively, not necessarily. You need to have a toolbox of all of these practices for yourself and your relational practices. My wife and I have been working on a book on how to have difficult conversations. One of the things that has been very clear to us is that people don't necessarily even have a way to initiate. And I, that a lot of times I find in my work with people, because I work with people in both personal and professional situations, is that I am constantly strategizing with them about how to have conversations in a business environment or in a personal environment. Like, what do you want? Like, what outcomes are you wanting? It's like really to do a kind of analysis about what are your outcomes? What would your purpose be in raising something? Because a lot of times people don't really know why they're raising it. They know they're upset, they're in pain about something, and they just, they blurt or they seethe. But they're not necessarily in tune with what outcome do they want, and then what are some of the best ways of going about creating those, or as I like to say, increasing the probability of having a positive outcome. Because that's all we're talking about. We're only talking about probability. We're not talking about certainty. There's anything that has to do with certainty in life. It's probably not part of life. I love that you're writing your next book on how to have difficult conversations because I feel like you can help so many people in relationship with that. Is there anything big that you'd like to cover before we close? I think that for each of us on an individual level, how do we develop our own individual resilience support other people to be resilient and to keep focusing on what we want to create in this world rather than what we don't want. I'm not saying I'm a master of this, but I try to keep coming back to this point. What positive difference can I make? How can I make even the smallest difference in people's lives? And so I know for me, my work isn't simply about, oh, my my counseling or coaching practice, my seminars. Like, how am I going to be in the world? How do I treat waiters and waitresses? How do I treat people in line? How do I treat people on the highway? Just really being mindful, and I would say heartful, about being in relationship on a multitude of different levels and to take the deepest level of personal responsibility to be positive as much as possible. And that said, to recognize that not all of you is positive. As human beings, hatred is definitely a part of the dynamic. There is greed, there's greed, delusion, and hatred. There are things that are baked into the human brain that are just part of us, and to the degree that we can be aware of the ones that can be destabilizing to ourselves and other people, then we can actually work with them in more conscious ways. And that's my hope, is that we become increasingly conscious and caring toward ourselves and others. Yeah, that's so beautiful. 
Thank you so much for sharing all of this great wisdom with us. I'm just so thrilled that you were able to be with us today. And we'll have to have you back on the show because I'm sure that we'll have a lot more questions about this whole topic. And I just love that we opened it up for everyone. So thank you. I'm so grateful. I'm happy to come back. And it's a pleasure speaking with you. You ask wonderful questions and I can really feel like your heart's in, I don't want to say the right place because I don't think there's one right place, but your heart's in a really good place. So thank you for being you. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks so much to Daniel for being with us on Untangle today. To find out more about his book or his workshops and more, go to wisebrain.org. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And if you have a minute, can you give us a review or rating for this podcast? It helps a lot. And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio in the App Store. We'll see you next week.